Well, good morning to you. Um, so, uh, Adam's in Romania. He says hi. Um, <laughs> I, got a, I got a text from him this morning. He, he did actually ask me to tell you he says hi. Hi. Um, he, he, has, he has spoken uh, about 327 times this week, um, and uh, I, I think he may be getting on the plane now-ish, uh, but he's on his way back. He said it's been a great week. He's had uh, lots of opportunities to, uh, to speak, to share the gospel, to encourage believers in Romania while he's been over there. So uh, we'll certainly look forward to hearing, uh, hearing stories from him when he gets back here. Uh, when he asked me to preach... Um, I'm going, yeah, man, I mean, I, 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 can, I can certainly preach for you. Uh, and, you know, and I'm thinking we've been in this, you know, this, this, uh, this grief uh, sorrow series, which he's done a fantastic job with. Um, and I don't do a fantastic job with that. So he's like, uh, you know, so I'm thinking, okay, well, good. You've, you've reached the, the end of your series. So, you know, I'll do, you know, I'll preach on, you know, like sunshine, you know. And, uh, and so he says to me, hey, um, you wrote a dissertation on the dark night of the soul, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, why don't you preach on that on Sunday? Okay. So you got one more week. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be as sunshiny and happy as we can, but, uh, but here we go. Uh, so I, I, I did. I, I wrote, my, uh, I wrote my, uh, my doctoral dissertation on... Um, uh, what John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul, the Puritans call it the desert season. And uh, the reason that I wrote my dissertation on that, uh, because, uh, you know, you have to do a lot of reading for that. And so I spent a lot of time reading about the desert. Um, and, uh, but the reason that I, that I did that is because my particular desert season was so spiritually formative for me. Um, uh, but it was also awful. And one of the most uh, uh, dreadful parts of it was nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, n- n- nobody wanted to admit that they had ever, it, when I went to church, you know, back when I was, you know, uh, in college a thousand years ago, uh, nobody, you know, I, I, I kind of went to shiny, happy people Baptist church, and nobody wanted to talk about people struggling in their faith. Nobody wanted to to identify with people who, um, who, who weren't, you know, their spiritual growth wasn't always up and to the right, you know, like uh, the, the, there, there are seasons that we struggle in our faith. There are seasons that we, that we struggle to believe. And so when I went through it, I felt like I was the only person on the planet in the history of Christendom that had ever felt that way. And, and you think I'm being hyperbolic, but I, I spent Saturdays in every Christian bookstore I could find, in every town I went to, and I could find nothing on this. No, it's, it's like nobody had ever written on it. I mean, I could find self-help books. I could find how to be a, a better husband, how to be a better leader, how to be better this, that, or the other, uh, I, I, how, to, how to read the Bible better. How to, you know, I, I could find all of that, but I, I could never find the section of, hey, belief isn't easy for me right now. What do I do? with this. So I wrote one. And it turns out when you dig into the scriptures looking for this, 
what I discovered was I wasn't the only person that ever felt like this. And when I went to do my project for my dissertation, uh, I wrote a small group curriculum, um, and I had to invite these people who had gone through a desert season, who had experienced that, to come and be a part of it, to sort of test drive my curriculum to make sure it was useful uh, and all this kind of stuff. And so um, I, I, sent out a, a, I sent out a letter to the people in the church where I was serving at the time, and I thought, I, I'm not getting, no, nobody is signing up for this. This is, this is going to be a, a colossal bust. Uh, but I need at least six. I, I have to have at least six. You know, so, you know, if I got to beg, borrow, steal, I got to find six people. So I sent the email out. It went out on Sunday at the end of church. And I had 34 people registered by the next day. Okay, okay. all right, so this is a thing. This is something that people besides me have actually walked through. And so what I want to talk to you about today in terms of walking through the valley is what do we do when we experience seasons of spiritual loss? What do we do when we come into seasons of spiritual grief where what we have lost is a, um, a sense of intimacy, a sense of closeness, a sense of the nearness and the awareness of the presence of God in our lives? What happens when that goes away like that? So look, let me just tell you, I, I'll, give you I'll spare you the details of going to every Christian bookstore because I don't think they exist anymore. But even if they did, go, going to every one you could find and looking for books, you're not the only one that's felt like that. It turns out there are a whole lot of people that have felt like that. And so here's what the desert season is. The desert season is when we enter into a season in our faith where our awareness, our nearness, our intimacy with the Lord is all of a sudden gone. And where I was engaging in worship and experiencing close intimacy with the Lord when I was reading the scriptures and the, pages were, uh, the words were jumping off the page at me when I was praying and I felt like that I was whispering into the ear of my father. All of that went away to where I'm reading the Bible and nothing makes sense to me. I'm praying and the words are bouncing off the ceiling back at me and I could not figure out why. And there's a great cloud of witnesses that has walked with me in that. So if you've ever experienced that, if you're experiencing that now, there is a great cloud of witnesses that have done that, have done that with you. So we're going to walk through what this looks like today. First, uh, who, who, is this, who has this happened to? Am I the only one? No, you're not. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people this has happened to. Most notably, and I'm going to give you several Scripture, scripture passages here uh, and read through them really quickly, uh, but first is David. And here are several. David, uh, Psalm chapter 10, uh, or Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, 1, also of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 22, 1, the, the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the, of the enemy as with a deadly wound in my bones? My adversaries taunt me whilst they say to me all the day long, 
Where is your God? Go to Psalm 42. Why are you down? Why are you downcast or cast down, O my soul? Man, I, holy cow! Like when when that was my psalm. I mean, that's what I went to all the time. Why are you downcast, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. But not just David. We have other psalmists. Asaph, who was the choir master. Asaph says this in Psalm 77, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? And also, um, um, uh, uh, a leader of the choir of the people of God named uh, Heman, uh, not Haman, not the, not the villain in the book of Esther, this is a different guy, but Heman says this, uh, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And then we have this litany of guys whose names start with J. Job. Holy cow, Job. I mean, Job, the whole book of Job is Job asking, where are you, Lord? Where are you, Lord? Where are you, Lord? Until, and, the, and the best part is when the Lord finally answers at the book of Job and says, you want to know? You think you got questions? I'll answer you. Get ready. But the whole book of Job up to that point is, where are you, Lord? Why is this happening? Why aren't you answering? I, and, and then becomes very aggressive with, I demand to be heard. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, in Lamentations 3, 2, and 6, says, He has driven and brought me into the darkness without any light. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. And then Jesus, first in the Garden of Gethsemane and then on the cross. Matthew 27, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Eli lema shabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you're not the only one. I'm not the only one. We are in good company. Sometimes there are days, and praise the Lord, this is true, where faith is easy, and we know that the Lord is near. We can feel that the Lord is near. And we commune with him easily and freely. But there are seasons, my friends, where faith is not easy. Where the Lord is doing something we don't understand. So how do we process that? When does the desert season come? So I'm, I'm kind of, you'll, you'll see if you're taking notes, I'm kind of doing a who, what, when, you know, kind of a thing just to sort of get us our ideas around this. So when does the desert season come? Matthew three sixteen. And going into 4, uh, verse 1, and this was really the, kind of the cornerstone of what I wanted to accomplish with my dissertation is, is, is this truth. In Matthew chapter 3, we have this fantastic, and I don't have it all here, but you can go back and read it. In Matthew chapter 3, we have this fantastic theophanic manifestation where we see the entire Trinity on display all at once. It's Jesus' baptism. We hear the voice of the Father, we see the Son in flesh, and we watch the Spirit descend as a dove. The whole Trinity on display. It is a high point in the, in the book of Matthew. And so Jesus comes to John and says, hey, you got to baptize me. And John says, I don't think so. And Jesus says, nope, you have to do it. This is the plan of the Father. That's what Jesus means when he says we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. This is the plan of the Father. This is what he's doing. It's okay for you not to understand it. You need to baptize me. Okay. 
So he baptizes him, the dove descends, we hear the voice of the Father, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, if you have ever prayed and asked the Lord to confirm to you that what you were doing, how you were following, what you're hearing from him, that what you were understanding him to be doing in your life and asked him to confirm that in you, if you get that, pretty good. Watch what happens next. Then, okay, so then is a connective. Then is actually Matthew's favorite connective. Uh, Different gospel writers use different language keys, then is a big word for Matthew because what he's doing is he's stringing together narrative. It's not a, you know, we did this, then we did that, but that, and it might be separated, you know, by a week or a month. This is a sequential then for Matthew. He is connecting what's about to happen in chapter four with what just happened in chapter three. So Jesus comes up out of the water. Go back to that last slide, please. Jesus comes up out of the water. We hear the voice. We see the dove. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That is scripture whiplash. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased full trinity on display, and Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness by himself to be tempted by the devil. And that then connects those two things together. When does the desert season come? It comes when God decides for it to come. God initiates the desert season. One of the things, one of the, one of the lies that we fall into when we, when we find ourselves in the middle of a desert season is that we are here because God is, oh my this was so me. Uh, um, is that we wind up there because God is angry at me. Because I've disappointed him. I've made him angry. Or he just doesn't want me. Um, when I, was, uh, when I was teaching uh, intro to theology in high school, one of the things I would tell my students frequently is, look, th- th- there, are, there, are, there are two voices that you will hear in your heart. Well, there are basically two voices. There's God, and there is not God. That is not God. God does not send you into a desert season because he wants to be away from you. God does not send you into a desert season because he's disappointed in you, because he's angry with you, because he's frustrated that you're not a better follower. He knows you're not a better follower. That's why Jesus came. If you could do this yourself, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. Uh, I, I heard a, uh, a speaker say, Jared Wilson, Jared, if you're watching the podcast first, I'm highly honored. But second, um, uh, it, it, he said this one time, and, and I loved it. I mean, just, I mean, like, it, it shook me the whole weekend. God is never disappointed with you. God is never disappointed with you. He knows exactly what he got when he called you. 
So the desert season is not because he's disappointed with you or because he's frustrated with you, because he's angry with you, because he doesn't love you or just because he needs a break from you because you're just so darn frustrating. God brings about the season when he decides to bring about the season, when he initiates it, and we'll talk about why in just a minute. So how, how long does it last? I mean, how, how do I get out of it? That, well, here, here's the not great part of this. You don't get out of it. He gets you out of it. What he initiates, he also brings to conclusion. Uh, so for, uh, let's, let's do Matthew 4.1. Uh, yeah, thanks. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I think we all know what happens there for the next several verses. We'll look at that in just a minute. Then go down to 4.11 at the end of the pericope here. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. God initiates the season. God closes the season. And the duration of the desert season for you and for me will be different because it is, it is based on how long it takes for God's work in you to be completed. And I, I, I am not a fast learner. Uh, my desert season when I was in college lasted three years. Bless you. Lord fought me. No, that's not right. I fought the Lord because I knew what was better. I knew what he needed to be doing in my life. I knew how he needed to be leading me. I knew how he needed to be gifting me. And I was the reason it lasted as long as it did. Because I was resistant. I would love to tell you that, I, that I've learned my lesson from that, that I'm so much better at, at just willingly seeing the Lord's work and giving into it completely, but I'm not. I'm stubborn. And, uh, and sometimes I do, so I, I think I've gotten better, but I'm not great. The desert's going to last as long as it lasts for the, for the Lord to complete his work in your life. He's not in a rush. And you won't wear him down. Because he is invested in you knowing who he is. Not you walking around with what you think he is. Which brings us to our next point. Why does God do this? If God loves me, if God wants communion with me, then why does, he, why does he do this to me? Why does he do this to David? Why does he do this to Asaph? Why does he do this to Heman? Why does he do this to Job and Jeremiah and Judas? Why does, why does he do this to C.S. Lewis? Why does he do this to, to, to Lewis Meads? Why does he do it to A.W. Tozer? Why does, he do it to, why does he do it to me? Why does he do it to you? If he loves me, why does he do this? He's teaching us to love him for who he is, not for how he makes us feel. He's teaching us to love him for who he is, not for how he makes us feel. If you have kids, if, you, if you've raised kids... Um, this is one of the tough things in parenting, right? Right? Uh, I think a lot of us, uh, I've, got, I've got two kids, um, uh, they're, they're both in college, um, the loveliest village on the plains. Um, and there's a temptation, like you want your kids to think you're great, right? You, you want your kids, I mean, you know, you, you want your kids to think you're awesome, you want your th- kids to think you're, you know, that, that you've got some measure of coolness to you. 
but you want them to like you. You want your kids to enjoy being around you. And so it's difficult, especially when they're young, not giving them everything that they want because what they want is detrimental to them or it's not, it's not beneficial to them. You can't just eat gummy worms all the time. Everything's not marshmallow, marshmallows and Nestle Crunch. There's hard stuff in life, and they learn because you let them go through hard stuff in life. I coached baseball and softball uh, for years uh, when Holly and I were over in Atlanta. One of the most frustrating things for me as a coach is parents who would not let their kids struggle with getting better. Or parents who would come and try and do stuff for them so they wouldn't struggle getting better. Letting your kids struggle is how they get better. Letting your kids figure out what they don't know and what they're not good at helps them identify what they need to become better at and work to learn. If you do it for them all the time, they're five-year-olds the rest of their life. Thank God that never happens. This is what the Lord is doing with us in the desert season. The Lord wants us to love him. The Lord wants us to follow him. The Lord wants to be known by us, but he wants us to know all of him. And he wants us to follow him because of who he is, not because he keeps giving us Nestle Crunch or Butterfinger or Snickers, you know, whatever your thing is, you pick. And so he withdraws the sugar to give us the substance so that we can know him. He wants us to love him for who he is, not for how he makes us feel. Doing that deepens and secures our faith and makes it more sturdy. It makes us more resilient. And by the time the Lord brought me out of my desert season, after three years in college, uh, and I'll tell you what it was. I'll tell you what it was for me. It'll probably be different for you, but I'll tell you what it was for me. I was sitting in a classroom at Sanford University, and um, um, Greek exegesis class, translating Greek. And so we're, we're sitting in the room and we're translating, uh, we're translating the book of First John from Greek to English because First John is the most basic and easiest Greek in all the New Testament, and that's really about where my skill was. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and, you know, and I'm just doing, right? I mean, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. Translating. And all of a sudden, in that moment, I didn't do anything special. I was just doing. But all of a sudden, in that moment, the Lord opened my eyes to the reality that the, the Scripture that I was working in, all the Scripture, these are the words that the men who walked and talked with Jesus wrote about what he said and did. And for me, in, the, in three years of doubting, in three years of questioning, that, that, was, that was bedrock. And the Lord began to build me there. Yours will be something different. I mean, I mean unless you want to take Greek. 
Yours will be, I don't recommend it. Um, yours will be something different. But when he brings you out, you'll know it. And what you come out with is a stronger, more resilient faith that will withstand a lot more than the sugary faith you had that he took away. I think this season happens a lot when we go from the, 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 the faith that our parents passed on to us to making that faith our faith. That transition there seems to be a period where this desert season comes in of, am I going to believe this? And if I am, what am I going to believe? And the Lord will give that to you, but it's not an easy process. But the work that he does is worth it. He's deepening and securing your faith to make it less movable and more secure than what you had before. He's not content with us only knowing a circumstantial view of him. What I mean by that is this. God is good when he gives me what I want. Now, the backside of that coin, which we're probably, and I hope, more hesitant to say out loud, is that if he doesn't give me what I want, God is not good. He doesn't want us to know him circumstantially. What he wants to get us to a place of, God is good, regardless of what happens here. He's good. And so, uh, again, you know, one of the things when I was teaching intro to theology with students in high school it, that I would say to them, because, you know, and look, they would ask great questions. And, uh, you know, if you were in my DOU class this last, this, this last, this round when we, were, when we were doing Christian theology here, when you're doing, when you're talking theology, eventually you're going to get to the end. With every question, you're going to get to the end of, uh, because he's God. You know, and he reveals himself to us so that we can know him, but we're not going to know all of him. I mean, when we get to heaven and we stand in the undiluted presence of Christ for all eternity, we're still, for the rest of eternity, going to be learning more about who God is. So here, in this little space that we have, like right here, I mean, we're just going to get there. Sometimes we get there really quick. So, you know, when we get to the place where we just don't understand... After the desert season, we can, we can affirm, look, I don't get everything that he does. I don't understand every way that he moves. I don't understand everything that, he, everything that he does in my life. But what I do know is this. God is always love. God is always good. God is always just. God is always right. And if my assessment of what he's doing doesn't match up with that, Guess who's wrong? This guy. Or, I mean, you know, could, could be you. But I don't put that on you. I mean, I, I just know my experience, but it was me. I probably owe Taylor Swift royalties for that statement. Um, he wants to be instruments of grace, and uh, he wants us to be instruments of his grace and glory. And whereas we think that, you know, Bringing him, bringing him glory means that, hey, give me all the good stuff you got and I'll show people how good you can be. He would much rather I show the world a faith that is unshakable and sure because he's revealed himself in meaningful, faithful ways. And that's why he does it. Another reason he does it is this, and this is huge. 
He does it to prepare you for future ministry seasons. Whether you're, you know, on the stage ministry person or whether you are, more importantly, lay person, priesthood of the believers, I go about my job, I go about my work, I'm a neighbor, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a father, I'm a mother, whatever, and I'm doing all these things with a faith that informs everything that I do in those things. He's preparing you for future ministry seasons. Look what happens here. Oh, we got to get the stick. Let's do, let's do Matthew. Yeah, thanks. The tempter came to him and said, if you're a son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, this is after 40 days of Jesus not eating, so he's hungry. Remember, he is 100% man, 100% God, and his flesh is hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. The tempter comes to him and says, command these stones to, be, to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, which is about a 300-foot drop, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Aha, okay, the devil's using Scripture. The devil's pulling Scripture out of context. Very important that we don't do that in the desert season. Read, read widely and deeply. Read the Scriptures, not just lines of Scriptures that, that you like what they say. Jesus said to him, again, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. All right, that's four through 10. If your Bible has, has headings in it, the heading that comes right after that is Jesus begins his ministry. This is right before Jesus begins his public ministry. Do you think, can you recall, in the New Testament, instances in Jesus' public earthly ministry where the devil opposed him? That's a yes. Can, 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 you, can you think of uh, times in Jesus' earthly ministry where the devil tried to discredit Jesus? Yes. And see, the heart of all these temptations that we just read, the heart of it is this. I will give you everything that you will gain by being obedient to the Father, but I will do it without the cross. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all the followers of the world. I'll meet every desire that you have, and I won't make you go to the cross. Do you think that was tempting to Jesus? I mean, obviously that passage is called the temptation of Jesus. I mean, in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't Jesus say, Father, if there, if there is any other way, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. I'm good with it. You got a plan B? Let's go. C, D, E, fine. Z, I don't care. We can start counting alpha numerals. I don't care. If you have another plan somewhere that's not the cross, I'll take it. You just kind of wonder if Satan's going, I got one. I got one. Well, what Jesus says next is so important. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. Oftentimes, the desert is meant to prepare us for what, Jesus for what Jesus has coming to us in the next seasons of our faithfulness. 
You, you might have no idea. You probably don't have any idea. I didn't have any idea how the desert season would inform my ministry, would inform my understanding of who Jesus is for years going forward. But he is doing something in you that you can't see. But he does see it. So what should our response be to the desert season? John 15, 1 through 9. I am the true vine, and my Father is the, is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's interesting. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Did the Father love Jesus by giving Jesus an, earthly, uh, an easy earthly ministry? No. Did the Father love Jesus by giving Jesus everything that he asked for? Go back to that Gethsemane question. No. He loved Jesus by showing him faithfulness and by making him an instrument of glory. And Jesus loved the Father by being faithful to what the Father commanded. There's a model here for us. How should we do this? We walk faithfully because the, script, because the Scripture teaches it. When you don't feel like reading the Bible, read the Bible. When you don't feel like going to church, especially when you don't feel like going to church, go to church. Because guess who's helping you feel like not going to church? Remember, there's only two options here, God or not God. When you don't feel like standing and lifting your voice in worship, do it more. Because the Lord will show you the value of those things, even though you're not feeling the marshmallowy, fluffy stuff that used to come with it. Worship him because of who he is. Seek to know him because of who he is. Offer your prayers to him because of who he is, not because of how he's made you feel. Continue seeking the Lord in spiritual discipline, Psalm 77, 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying, so, uh, my soul refuses to be comforted. In the, day of, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. You know, it's awesome how many times we read in the Scriptures, and look, you want to read, like, look, look at, the script, at, at the Psalms in the 40s and the 80s primarily. 40s, 70s, and 80s. And look how many times we see the psalmist, especially David, command his soul how his soul should respond to the Lord because his soul does not want to. This is a man after God's own heart. Worship, pray, read, read the scriptures, especially when you don't feel like it. And then this, let the church carry you to Jesus when you can't get there by yourself. 
Let the church carry you to Jesus when you can't get there by yourself. This is, look, this is the thing, this is the importance of Christian community. This is the, this is the importance of community groups. Look, it, it, we're not just trying to get numbers of people together. We're not just trying to see how big a group we can get in one particular room. We're not just seeing what draws more, hot coffee or hot donuts. We, I mean, that's not the reason for community. The reason for community is because there will be days that you, you in your heart cannot volitionally will yourself to seek the Lord and you need to be surrounded by people that are. When I, uh, when I was in my desert season in college, uh, I remember a Sunday, um, um, I was sitting up in the balcony at the church um, because it was like, I mean, you know, honestly, position, spiritually, positionally, that was, that was appropriate. I was far away from people and I felt far away from the Lord. But this, this one Sunday that I remember so vividly, like it was last week, even though it was 30 years ago, I remember hearing the people around me sing. Beautiful theology. Words of following. Words of submission. Words of trust. Words of faithfulness and praising God for his faithfulness. And I could not make myself say those words. I could not make myself say those words. And the people that were around me will never know, but their ministry to me and singing those words over me carried me to Jesus that day. You need the church. The local church is important. Be in the presence of God's people. Bow your heads, close your eyes. So just, just by some chance, which we all know is not chance one way or the other, but just maybe... Adam knew something when he asked me to preach on this. And just maybe my season might help you if you're in that season. And maybe you came here today and you, you just white-knuckled it getting out of bed. You white-knuckled it getting ready. And you're saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to go do this. I don't want to be in that place. But I need to be in that place. And I don't know why. And you got here. I'm thrilled that you are. If you're, if, if you're in the desert season and you don't know what the Lord is doing in your life, just because you don't see it doesn't mean he's not doing it. He has plans for you that are greater and broader and deeper than you can understand. So, Father, if, if there are people, if there are your people in this building this morning that that is true for, who are walking through the same wilderness that Moses walked through, that Job walked through, that Jeremiah walked through, that I walked through, would you encourage them today that you aren't just sovereign over all things, you are sovereign over everything that happens in their spirit.
and you have purpose in what you're doing in them. I pray that in the communities that they encounter in this place, that you would, you would use that to give them people that will bring them into your presence. But mostly, as you are accomplishing your will in our lives, I pray that you would give us faith to know and trust that even though we don't see what you're doing, you are diligently and purposefully doing it for our good and for your glory to make us more like you. And I pray that we would be receptive and moldable through the moving of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.